Camus' work is seen as like an existential, even though he pushed against and rejected the title, but a canonical existential novel. But Laurence, there's no existentialism for her. Welcome to Art Fictions and welcome back after our short summer break. I'm Gillian Knipe, artist, creator and producer of this podcast which looks at art through the lens of literature. It also aims to give voice to both artists and art commentators of different ages, cultures, identities, backgrounds and genders. Oh, well, that's only partly true, isn't it? Because the hosts are all women at the moment. Oops. Settle in for an extended episode today as we give a warm welcome to our host, curator and PhD candidate Palumi Odobanjo, along with guest artist and DJ Olukemi Lijadu. This was originally a super long chat and I did do a little snipping here and there, but I felt it was particularly important to create the space for Olukemi and Palumi to give their first-hand accounts as a gesture of support for their personal archives. And that's going to make a lot more sense in terms of context once you listen to the program. Olukemi and Palumi talk a lot about positionality, and this has been truly mind-opening and actually quite reassuring. I completely relate to the oddness I often feel when I have a reaction to viewing or seeing or reading that doesn't toe the line with what seems like a group consensus or the ridiculous notion of objectivity. On top of that, the conversation delves deeply into questioning Western critique and introducing alternative and obviously well overdue viewpoints when it comes to assessing creative work. So, you know, may they be all valued and considered equal. Beyond the specific content of this episode, I thought about Genetic Automator by Larry Achampong and David Blandy that's on now at the Welcome Collection in London. It's a suite of gaming aesthetic films which highlight the genetic misinformation that justified enslavement. I also thought about the brilliant African photography exhibition, which is currently on at Tate Modern, and amongst an amazing array of work, it shows Wura Natasha Agunji's richly visceral film of women dragging heavy water kegs by their ankles through the dusty streets of Lagos and the amazing power, colour, pattern mix compositions of Melbourne, Australia-based Sudanese artist Atong Atem. And because so much of the book was overshadowed by the absent mother, I was reminded of writer Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, where mother is country and loss is devastating, disorienting, and it seems to generate a sprawl of responses, some of which are destructive and others are incredibly resourceful. Then a final point, when they spoke about the film Saint Omar, I thought of French Malian singer Rokia Traore and how the Malian court's ruling in her custody case is not recognised by European authorities and that seems to question whether Belgium or Europe are truly granting equal status to the diplomatic establishment in Africa. And I personally need Rokia to be free 
to tour without fear of reprimand so I can see her perform in the UK. Well, that's enough of me. Let's have more of them. Welcome to Art Fictions, Oli Kemi Lijadi. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be in conversation with you today. I'm very excited. And for our discussion today, Oli Kemi has chosen the novel, The Stranger, by Alba Camus, published by Gallimard in 1942. The Stranger, also published in English as The Outsider, is a 1942 novella written by French author Alba Camus. The first of Camus' novels, published in his lifetime, the story follows Massou, an indifferent settler in French Algeria, who, weeks after his mother's funeral, kills an unnamed Arab man in Algiers. The story is divided into two parts, presenting Massou's first-person narrative before and after the killing. And it's a fascinating book to have read, and I'm so pleased that you've chosen it for our discussions today. So let's start by finding out why you chose this particular book. And I'd love to know, Oli Kelly, when did you first read the book and what first drew you to it? Why did I choose the book? I think I first read the book when I was 19, and it was upon recommendation by my father. My dad grew up in Paris, and it's a staple in French curriculums, in the same way that all of us in England read, um, do we all read Pride and Prejudice? I think we do. Yeah, yeah, I think we <laughs> <Yes>. all do. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's somewhere in the GCSE curriculum also. Uh, the Stranger is that sort of book, I believe, in France. And knowing that I was interested in philosophy and that was what I was going to end up studying in university. And Camus is a renowned sort of literary philosopher. My dad recommended I read it. Um, and I did. I read it at 18. And, and then I reread it two weeks ago when he reached out to me for the book. And that made me question, oh, my God, why did I choose? <laughs> why did I choose this book? But I'm, I'm happy I chose it because I think 10 years, it's been 10 years since I last read it. And I've read it with new eyes and ears and a new outlook. And I think it gets to a lot of the tensions within the field that I love, which is philosophy. Um, it, it grapples with a lot of the issues that I think I try to push against in my work in a difficult way. So yeah, it's, it's a difficult book, but you know, I like difficult things. Difficult things are very fun, I find, <laughs> the older I get. Yes. Um, and I think it's quite fitting, this idea of you kind of revisiting the book in a later stage. I find it quite fitting with the kind of, I guess, content of the novel and this idea of this main character revisiting a site and revisiting a location. And I just wanted to ask you then, for our listeners, mm -hmm. could you tell us about the story of this novel? Absolutely. The book focuses around a sort of indifferent pied noir um, in Algeria. His name is Mersou. And a pied noir translates to black feet. 
And that was the word for the European settlers in Algeria that settled in uh, the country in the advent of colonialism. And Mercer is this interesting character that is French, but you know hasn't hasn't lived in France and lives in the country with the majority Arab population, but it's very segregated. Anyway, the novel or the novella begins with the iconic first sentence, which is Maman et Mort, which translates to Mother is dead or my mom is dead. And we follow Mercer to his mother's funeral and wake, where he's remarkably detached and aloof. And after that, he returns back home, goes for a swim with his girlfriend, but in the midst of that, sort of gets wrapped up in a scheme with his neighbor called Raymond. And Raymond's domestic abuse of his girlfriend sparks a rivalry with some people termed the Arabs in the novel. Eventually, they all go on holiday and Masur kills an Arab. Then he's put on trial. And what's interesting about this novel is that given that he is a European in Algeria, the trial isn't really so much about the fact that he killed another person. He is eventually sentenced to death mostly on the basis that he didn't cry at his mother's funeral. So it's sort of an exposition of French colonialism and Algerian society in that a man can kill an Arab person and not be tried for murder, but really for unfeeling when it comes to another European person. And in this case, this was Mercer's mother. So it's meant to be a very self-aware novel in that regard. That is very interesting, actually, because, for example, when I think about the stories and the narratives of thinking about a colonial Algiers or colonial Algeria, I encounter them through the works of kind of Franz Fanon, for example, and this kind of theoretical, of course, psychoanalysis framed lens of thinking about the colonial body and the colonial mind Mm -hmm. but I find it so interesting to think about it through this feeling of emotion it has a presence in this novel I sense the idea of emotion and this idea for example of this first line being so so greatly um, renowned you know my man died today I think that's quite interesting so I'd love to hear about how you kind of see the role of emotion playing out in this novel and I guess also connected to this as somebody who read this book first while in school and who then read it two weeks ago (laughs) I wonder if for you the idea of emotion has differed from the age of 18 to now when you encounter the novel yeah um that's a really interesting question I think the book is like famously very cold very sort of staccato in the rhythm of the sentences. Mercer is just kind of observing and floating through life and not really feeling any strong emotions. And his lack of emotional reaction to his mother's death is what eventually condemns him. 
it made me think a lot about emotion as performance and the ways in which emotions are reserved, especially at least in like a colonial context, for those that look like me, if I'm thinking about Mersu. So it's very interesting that the judge and the jury don't even have the expectation that a man's emotional range should extend to an Arab person, an indigenous person to Algeria, but they're indignant that, you know, his emotional range didn't extend to his mother. And I think that's something that is like recurrent. The book is kind of like an allegory for literature in general. I just remember in so many books that I was reading, like there's just an inherent disrespect and disregard for black and or women. And there's a sense that as a woman or as a black person, you must sort of swallow sort of like the visceral, uncomfortable emotions that reading this kind of novel is going to sort of prompt in you. I'll just maybe think about like To Kill a Mockingbird. I remember feeling very uncomfortable in class reading that at GCSE level, kind of feeling like the reading that we were given at the time was not enough but not really having the language or the, you know, critical reading skills to articulate that. Similarly with The Outsider, when I first read it, I didn't have the skills to honour my discomfort. I think there's like a double reading as both a woman and a colonised subject. You're not sure what side Albert Camus is on. I guess the French take is that he is sort of a revolutionary for exposing the horrors of colonial framework that was Algeria at the time, through, you know, showing how unfeeling both Mercer and the society were to the murder of this man. But as a colonized person reading it, how do I know, how do I assess that this really is a self-aware take? Like, is it a self-aware take or is this like a racist person writing a book? You know, also the fact that the killing is prompted by domestic violence. Mercer's neighbor beating up his girlfriend. The outsider is um, known for being sort of existential and absurdist novel. But the violence that we witness in the book is not absurd, given society. So I don't know, it's a difficult book to read as me. It's interesting what you said, because the presence of women is so strong in a sense. The novel quite literally opens to my mother has died. And I guess it's both presence and non-presence in a sense of this female figure who in essence, the main character's relationship with this is what comes to haunt him in the end. And his, I mm-hmm. guess, emotions and his relationships to this figure who physically may not be there anymore, but their presence still oversees this novel in a very interesting way that I hadn't encountered before in literature in the same sense. And then you also have the girlfriend, of course, who is a victim of domestic violence. So 
I think it's very interesting that you bring up your positionality as a woman, as a racialized, as a colonized body, and your reading of these characters and their figures. And I wonder, am I am I right in saying that? Would you would you agree in the sense that the mother figure it very much embodies this idea of a presence and also non-presence and also taps into a story of kind of matrilineage in its own unique way. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's crucial that it was a mother's death and not a father's death in which Mesut didn't show emotion. There's something particularly egregious about that. But it also immediately positions the mother as a sort of shadow that hangs over the work. She's such a central character, but she has no voice were not let into her world, how she would feel about her son. And we see throughout the novel, Mercer having to justify sending his mother to a home. So that sort of sets us up for the eventual trial in that there is this deep judgment of him, you know, sending his mother away. And it's really interesting that that is more egregious than killing another human being. And the absence of woman is also present with Mercer's girlfriend who kind of visits him in prison here and there, but then sort of fades out of relevance of the novel as the idea of women sort of fade from his desires as he gets used to life behind bars. I think one of the tensions with reading, and I don't know if you feel this, Pilumi, at all, is this idea that one must divorce one's positionality from how they read or engage with work for their reading to be valid. And I think that that's quite a hard thing to negotiate. But coming back to this novel 10 years later has given me more confidence to include myself and have that position as relevant for this novel in particular, I was really interested to see the different receptions in France and Europe and America versus its reception in Algeria. Could you tell us about these different receptions? Absolutely. That you've encountered. And also with that, I wondered when you first encountered the book and when you first read the book, did you read it in English or in French? I read it in English. Yeah. My French isn't that good. <laughs> Mine, Mine's terrible, so <laughs> do not worry. But <laughs> I wondered as well, tied in with this, this reception that the novel received, the idea of translation within literature as well, and particularly thinking about a book and the context of it being something that is connected to this colonial era and this idea of language and also... Yeah, the kind of colonization of language and interpretation as well. I wonder if there's anything you could speak to within that, this idea of translation of this novel and that tied with as well reception, reception in different locations. Yeah, I think this comes back to what I was saying about it being like a difficult book. I mean, translation is one of the first difficulties. Um, one encounters. In fact, the first line is difficult and there's controversy over how Maman translates to English. It's somewhere in between mother and mom or mommy, you know? 
not as cold as mother, but not quite as warm as mom. And yeah, English doesn't necessarily have a word to accommodate that in between. And I think reading it in English further displaces it from its cultural context. And perhaps for those reading the novel in Europe or America, Camus made a very intentional choice to actually to make sure that the Arab characters are nameless and they're simply called the Arab. And that has popularly been billed as like self-aware and, you know, allegorical and speaking to like the true European imagination of like the indigenous populations that they colonized. But how confidently can we say that in the minds of of the Europeans or Americans reading the book, that they do not already have this sort of blanket, dehumanized idea of colonized peoples, such as Arabs or African people. It's easier to appreciate the allegorical nature of the novel. It would be easier if the world was different. Basically, in Algeria, it's not taught. It's not like this classic novel in the same way it's like heralded in the West. It contains the pithy and brutal killing of an Arab person with a sleight of hand. So I would understand why they're not going to be teaching that. It's disrespectful. I mean, the reality of colonialism is deeply disrespectful. But Camus literally won the Nobel Peace Prize, not just for the stranger or the outsider, but also for, you know, his other works. That contrast and reception reminds me that one's positionality is important to pay attention to, and we cannot read this novel without interrogating why it occupies different places in both canons. And this idea of positionality is something that I find so, so present in not only my research that I'm currently doing, but I I see it in so many respects and aspects of your work. That was wonderful to hear about your relationship to the novel and very interesting to think about returning to a novel and returning to a piece of work and thinking about it in some ways retrospectively. So thank you. And I'd like to now move on to talk about your art practice. Before I go on to that, I just want to mention that I very recently watched the French film Saint Omar. I love that film. It's incredible. And thinking about it, it was really beautiful. I watched it in Paris just over a month ago now. And it was in Paris, of course, with um, with subtitles. (laughs) But just thinking about this idea of being on trial and the kind of interrogation Mm -hmm. of memory of these people, these bodies, and in this case of the French female body, but also the the interrogation of this woman's memory in relation to her child and and the unfortunate thing that occurred there. But this idea of being on trial, I find so interesting. And yeah, I'd love to know, what did you think about the film? I loved it so much. I mean, as a Black woman who studied philosophy, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah. Recently, I saw someone saying that she watched it in France with a majority white audience. And everybody laughed. Not everybody, but a lot of people laughed when the woman on trial, I forget what's her name, 
it was Lawrence. Laurence. Laurence. Yes, yes. <laughs> Much better pronunciation. Sorry, um, yeah, <laughs> no, no. When she said that she was interested in Wittgenstein, they found that funny. And see, this is the deep, deep difficulty with dealing with these subjects that are calling out. There seems to be a limit to many, I can't say all, but for many Europeans' critique of the colonial project. Because for you to find it funny that a Black woman is studying Wittgenstein, and it's actually very funny because Wittgenstein was also my introduction to philosophy as a discipline. His philosophy of language was like what led me to my eventual path of studying the subject. So why is it funny? I think that's if a very, white man was, if Merceau was on trial in the scene, I doubt that it would have garnered the same laughs. It absolutely would not and have. This is why, like, the claims to objectivity and this idea that I had to erase myself whenever reading novels that enact violence towards women or black or colonized subjects, this was something I used to feel like I had to kind of force myself to do. But Europeans are not reading themselves out of the novel. But I think it makes me contemplate who has claims to objectivity who can make claim to the absurd. How Mercer's murder of an Arab person prompted by the sun, as it is in The Stranger or The Outsider, can be seen as absurd. But would Laurence's murder of her own daughter ever be seen outside of the prism of her race and gender? No. Camus' work is seen as like an existential, even though he pushed against and rejected the title, but a canonical existential novel. But Laurence, there's no existentialism for her. I think that's very interesting. And this idea of no escaping. And I think the question actually of who has claims to objectivity and in cases subjectivity and this idea of kind of distance between the reader and the novel I find to be a very very interesting question and in my own research at the moment I'm thinking about this idea of positionality in relation to the archive and in particular archival photographic images of the West African diaspora and it's really about repositioning this idea of the black woman being the photographer or regardless of whether the kind of visual material is present just having the black woman be the the narrator allowing them to claim subjectivity objectivity to reclaim a positionality and to think about positionality I I think of the work of of Toni Morrison. I think of the work of so many incredible contemporaries. Right now, I think of Lola Olufemi and her ideas around the experimental and the different ways that Black women can access their subjectivity. And I see that so much in the work that that you're doing as well. And I guess before I get into that, I think I should actually introduce you (laughs) to our audience and introduce your art practice. So, Oli Kemi, you're an artist and DJ focusing on moving image and sound. Your academic training as a philosopher deeply informs your experimental approach to music and moving image, and you hold a bachelor's and master's degree in philosophy from Stanford University, where you focused on African philosophical systems. 
you're also a DJ under the moniker Ken Ken. Part of your artist biography also reads, and I quote, music and music history are a living archive of communal memory and lost connections, critical given the fractured history of the Black diaspora worldwide. With heritage from Nigeria, the Caribbean and Brazil, the impetus of her artistic practice is both personal and political. She sees her function as a filmmaker and DJ as one of recollection, end quote. And I think that's such a wonderful description of the really diverse array of practices that you tap into. And I think your work, for me, really embodies the idea of a, an interdisciplinary practice. I think it embodies it quite quite beautifully. So I wanted to talk to you about your practice. And I guess I should start by saying that we first met when I was at the Curations, where you are, I believe, currently a studio yes. artist. Yes, yes. And I first encountered your work first in the group show, actually, that was on at VO Curations, which involved many of the other studio artists but I think more deeply when we did a studio visit and when we spoke about your incredible incredible work Guardian Angel so I wanted to first I guess open this conversation with Guardian Angel because I think it's quite fitting considering that's where we first kind of began our discussion and I wondered if you could tell the audience about Guardian Angel, about this really incredible installation piece and moving image piece. Yeah, Guardian Angel is a piece that keeps revealing itself to me also. So I'll describe it in the way that I see it now. But let's talk again in 10 years. And Definitely. I'll be curious <laughs> to see how I describe it then. But it's a... Uh, multi-channel installation and film that tackles the questions of religion, colonialism, um, self-knowledge, and how that all ties in with our personal relationships with those we love, the affection, the contradictory affections we can have for something that's simultaneously entrapped but was transformed by us meaning black people in the diaspora and in Africa and yeah it really starts off after my grandmother passed away and her passing for me resurfaced a lot of foundational core memories I had and um, she really was like my first introduction to spirituality and she is a very catholic woman and just for context i grew up in and i'm from nigeria and so my grandmother was a catholic woman of yoruba heritage living in nigeria um, and her deep affection for the catholic church came from a really genuine place in that she was orphaned at the age of 14 at that time, she was attending Catholic school called Holy Child, run by British nuns. And these nuns who ran the school adopted her. Essentially, they were her everything. And they like employed her. She worked there as a teacher after graduating, and they sent her to school abroad. They raised her. And so my grandma loves 
and transmitted her deep love for what these nuns represented to me as a child. And obviously, this is before I understand, you know, the horrors of colonialism or, or the ways in which Christianity was used to justify the slave trade. And just before all of this, this was just a very sort of organic pure introduction to what it means to be spiritual and marked by stories, fantastical stories of angels, a deep sense of comfort I had as a child, thinking that they were looking over me, coupled with a grandmother whose Christianity didn't feel exclusionary. She still had a deep reverence and respect for African religions and spiritual practices. So that was my first sort of introduction to Christianity. And then as I got older, read about Nigerian history, come to some logical conclusions about the fact that, you know, if Christianity is the way, that means that all our ancestors prior to the missionaries arriving and the colonial project more broadly would be in, um, you know, hellfire. That seemed like a troubling and just an incorrect conclusion for me at 16. And then I would go on to study philosophy and to be interested increasingly in African ways of knowing, having studied Western philosophy from the Greeks to the contemporary philosophers of today. And Guardian Angel is seeking to make a piece that speaks to the difficulties of being a colonized person, especially when it comes to realizing the truth of the matter is I am an African woman, but I have been sort of raised in and amidst and to respect Western canon and to have a deep affection for Christianity, this thing that simultaneously enslaved us, but also we find comfort in. And like, just to speak to those tensions, because I think oftentimes things can be portrayed as quite like black and white. You know, once you realize the evils of colonialism were meant to drop all of these pretenses, but it's not that easy. These ways of thinking and ways of being are intricately like wound up in our personal relationships and also the ways in which we see ourselves. And it's not easy to access the self-knowledge. Um, so, yeah, I think what Guardian Angel seeks to do is sort of trace those tensions and not necessarily provide a definitive sort of rejection or acceptance, but rather to hold space for all these contradictions and music, like the score of the film is sort of the heartbeat of the film, holding space for these conflicting thoughts and feelings and grief and grief, not only of like someone that I loved, but also sort of an innocent spirituality corrupted by the truth that is imperialism but yeah I feel like I said so much um no. <laughs> but generally that's what guardian angel is about <laughs> yeah but it's it's very fitting that you said so much because as you just <laughs> mentioned the word tracing and for me also guardian angel is a real 
exploration of and when I say this word I don't mean it with any of the negative kind of connotations that this word has <laughs> often had but it feels like a very kind of fragmented presentation of many different forms of memory both a personal memory inherited memory a cultural memory and so many more and I think it's so important that you stated and you repeated to me that you are a Nigerian who was born in Nigeria and raised in Nigeria and of course now you live within a different diaspora a different kind of Nigerian diaspora but I think it's very important to state this as I don't know for myself for example I am a Nigerian but I'm a Nigerian who was not born in Nigeria who was not raised in Nigeria who only visits Nigeria but in many ways, I have these inherited memories of my parents and their experience growing up in Nigeria and living there for what now is half of their lifetime, actually. And this other half has been um, it's been here, it's been in England. So I think this idea yeah. of memory, of these different, these different resonances, I guess, these different sounds of memory are, are something very beautiful in the work. And I, I wanted to firstly ask you about this idea of memory and I guess in ways to link to the book, the way that memory interlinks in the book, this idea of this idea of because, of course, the novel, I, I hope I mentioned it, it's in first person narrative and the voice and the reader has to at least trust you and kind of question this idea of what is true and what is fictional and and what may have been fabricated and what what actually occurred and yeah I think as somebody who works in moving image and works with the visual and works with just images generally I guess it's a lingering question for me of how do we trust the photographer or how do we trust the, the filmmaker or how do we trust the archivist? Is what we see, for example, truth? And how do we kind of look at their memory and look at their their compilation of memory, I guess, in, in this case? So, yeah, I wondered what role does memory, I guess, play in this work in particular? And I guess that would link to your wider practice, which I will get onto. But, yeah, this idea of memory in guardian angel i think i think is very interesting yeah i love your use of the word compilation of memory because it reminds me of like a compilation cd i love, I love that i'm going to keep that <laughs> <laughs> um, i love that but yeah i mean i think one sort of driving force for the work and also just for my practice as a filmmaker in general is this idea that there's a new way of accessing memories that sort of came with the advent of our generation. I remember for my 15th birthday or something, I had asked for a digital camcorder. And the fact that a 15-year-old girl can use a digital camcorder to record her surroundings, but more importantly, to record her grandparents who are still alive and somehow create an archive for her children and their children potentially to hear their ancestors speaking in first person is mm. crazy to me. That's beautiful. I see it as genuinely like magical and like a form of time travel. And prior to our generation, this would not, I mean, it would have been possible, but so accessible. You know, so really, I found myself as a teen 
on the precipice of this very incredible thing that felt very, very, very special. And that's what kind of drew me to my grandparents as subjects. Not really the audience of today in mind, but truly, for whatever reason, as a child, I was thinking about my descendants, potential descendants, because I would have loved to hear my great-grandparents speak or their great-grandparents. And I am really intrigued to know, had I heard them speak, how would that influence my sense of self and who I thought I was? And so, yeah, I really see film or like my practice as a filmmaker as a sort of like time capsule, like I'm making like these time capsules whose full potential we can only like have a glint at in our like contemporary moment. But really the real impact will be in generations to come. If the earth is still a thing, you know, if global warming doesn't ravage. <laughs> and it's looking like it will it's not looking to be bleak. doom and gloom, but it's not looking um, good. Yeah. So film as like a moving image as like a portal for memories in this new form. And I also think like when it comes to truth and first person, I'm really, really inspired by the works of James Baldwin, like the fire next time had a profound influence on me. Yes, once again, thinking about my positionality as like a black Nigerian woman is that I think for so much of my education, I was trying as far as I could to sort of dissolve myself when encountering works to not hinge how I interpret or how I read a work or where I write from, to actively suppress my own unique positionality. But what I found with The Fire Next Time was that Baldwin's starting point was himself and a rigorous interrogation of the self. And I think that that's like a very brave but also critical starting point that sort of sets the tone for the rest of his work that deviates from the self. But I think through looking at the self, he's allowing us to negotiate his positionality. And The Fire Next Time also looks at Baldwin's religious background. And he kind of admits that, you know, during his time as a preacher, he was a a fraud in some sense, but that is totally redeemed through the frankness with which he tackles the subject of himself in that work. And um, I think what I'm trying to do is something similar with Guardian Angel, I think, which is I'm offering a critique of religion, but I'm also being honest that there is affection there and it's not that simple that the understanding of the rational doesn't discount the emotional I hope through exposing my own contradictions and not seeking to suppress one side in favor of the other, the two sides being just like an emotional connection to the spirituality of my grandmother. And then with the reality of Christianity as a tool for violence in my home country, by just holding these two sides of me and offering them up to the audience, hopefully 
so they can see the contradictions within themselves and be comfortable holding space for the two. That's such a wonderful deep dive. And I think, again, what you said has resonated so much because what comes to mind when thinking about this idea of kind of critical distance and positionality and in many, many cases, the African body, the the Black female body, the kind of quote unquote other body has been for so long denied the opportunity to be subjective um, and to kind of look at things from within and to look at things as the self as a starting point because the idea of the self has been historically stripped from us. I think it's it's so wonderful what you've done in that you've, of course, looked at the personal and there's this really, I think, beautiful interaction with materiality of Guardian Angel and that some of the kind of footage, I guess, it's self-taken footage, it's your own footage. And then they're not intervals, but you have these archival footages as well. But when I say archival, I really refer yeah. to, for example, the clip of what I believe are the Dutch missionaries and... Yeah. Yeah. And the kind of the kind of natural, I guess, break of the work when that clip appears on the screen. It's very interesting when you're in a room watching that. You also have the music and the sound, which you've noted, which is a very, very important part of Guardian Angel and of your practice as a whole. And as well as watching Guardian Angel, I loved listening to Guardian Angel and listen to the soundtrack and listen to this real montage of my own memory of these songs that I heard in Nigerian hall parties and and in my home growing up and and hearing them um, layered with your images. I know I said a lot there, but I I really wanted to ask you about the role of sound in your practice. And I guess to open it up beyond Guardian Angel to think about your work as a DJ and your interaction with music within your wider practice, I think is, is something very unique to what you're doing at the moment. Yeah, so I'd say for me growing up, sound was what connected me to the diaspora growing growing up in Nigeria my father collected CDs and we'd listen to so much African American music music from the Caribbean we scratch Perry Bob Marley in America we'd listen to Aretha Franklin Christopher Williams Whitney Houston the I legends the legends I felt like there was no distinction between myself and these voices and my grandmother is from the Caribbean she's from Jamaica and a lot of the ways that she would imbibe us with Caribbean culture was through like rhymes and songs from the island and so I've really been sort of wrapped up I think from a young age in the idea of music as like an emotional communication across borders and when I went to America it was very interesting because I went to university in America I went to Stanford and when I got there I was naively expecting you know it to be sort of like a seamless blend into like the black American culture but I was confronted with the fact that I I'm a foreigner. Mm. I might be black, but I'm not black in an American sense because I'm not an American. 
Mm. And that disconnect was like quite jarring for me. And I suspect it's jarring for so many people, even even for many Black Americans too, because people come to community with so many expectations. And Black is so broad and amorphous, a term that it cannot possibly contain all the iterations of Blackness that we all come to it with. But at that time, I was disappointed, you know? and didn't feel like I was easily read. I think given my accent, I mean, right now, I think my accent is a blend of like all the places I've lived. But I think at that time, I felt like my accent was quite Nigerian British. Mm. But I feel like it would only be read as British, which was then coded as white. There were all these ways I felt like I was not being seen including by what I thought would be my own community. But when I started DJing, it was really, really fascinating. I feel like I was able to, within one set, almost connect my African background with my deep knowledge of like African-American music with my Caribbean. And I was able to create through sound, these spaces where all these communities with these different iterations of blackness all kind of wanting to be seen by each other could be. And suddenly it felt like my blackness was not to be contested anymore, which was, yeah, very powerful. That for me was once again another quite magical experience and understanding of the power of music and memory Mm. and community and the ability for music to hold contrasting states at once so a piece can feel both unsure and confident oftentimes through song or dance we are imbibing ways of knowing Mm. that we don't yet have the language for especially for communities whose ways of knowing have been systematically repressed and suppressed we must take music seriously because perhaps it's one of those threads of connection that wasn't able to be extinguished You can burn books, you can separate people so that they're not speaking the same language. You can teach them so many things outside of themselves. But for some reason, music persists and has persisted. So it's really, really critical to my practice and gives shape to the work that I make. I was just so in a trance listening to you because it so beautifully, I think, encapsulates how so many of us, I would think, as black bodies, and of course, this idea of music persisting and sound persisting throughout our histories can apply to other diasporas and other communities and other histories. But there's something about the relationship between blackness as it's come to be racialized, as we've all kind of come to be racialized, and sound, and this thing of sound and even dance and how our bodies in many ways become, I, I mean, I use this word because it was used in your biography but a living archive of these different sounds and as well I think about the work of 
Paul Gilroy and his chapter about yeah. music in, in the Black Atlantic. And I think about, of course, Fred Moten and what feels like his lifelong work and commitment to yes. this idea of Black sound. And in particular, I think of the story that Fred Moten told, I think, in Black and Blur of Frederick Douglass and his Aunt Hester and kind of recounted Fred Douglass's kind of autobiographical memory of when he heard the sounds of his Aunt Hester being whipped on the plantation. And he wasn't ever able to shake that sound. And of course, there are so many layers there about women, about women's bodies, that relationship there. But this this idea of sound is something, to repeat what you said, which has persisted and I think will persist within our diaspora, within our within our histories. And and with Guardian Angel, this this kind of montage, this kind of collage of sound that you create is is a real testament. And I think it captures that so wonderfully. So I think I just wanted to say how much I loved your interaction with sound. And I think what you're doing with your DJ work is oh, thank you. Is so unique. I, I think it's wonderful. But um I will I will also build from that. And I wanted to then ask about your work, which was seen at the incredible exhibition, I guess two exhibitions and two iterations, um, Manifold, and your interaction with archival images. And again, I I see your interaction here as also in many ways working with this idea of kind of montage and collage and, and fragmentation and this idea of kind of resurfacing different memories, maybe not directly your own memories, but this idea of kind of resurfacing and looking back um, and bringing them to the fore, I think uh, are really really beautiful this interaction with found images and found materials so I wanted to ask you about your work at Manifold and your use and I guess relationship with the archival because it's something that's of course relevant in Guardian Angel as well and I would say in your DJ work because you're quite literally both archiving and looking back at an archive of black sound in your work so yeah I wanted to ask you about your relationship with this idea of the archive and yeah it's role in your practice I'm interested in the archive because I'm interested in understanding myself and our collective selves as Black beings. And the only way to do that is through looking backwards and looking around right now. And the archive is fascinating because there's so much contention around our own archives. Like I remember when I was, you know, doing my master's and wanting to write a thesis on African philosophy, but coming up against so many of the the claims to the complications in African archives in that, like, they're mostly oral history and we didn't write things down. So this is somehow less less trustworthy than, like, written accounts and thus less worthy of interrogation or taking seriously. And so I think Black archives in particular present a sort of challenge of silence and erasure. So when we're looking at our archives, they require a level of sort of imagination as like evidence like with Sadia Hartman's work that she does in like plugging the holes in the gap or through looking at other mediums such as 
sound or even dance and thinking about how do these mediums hold space in the archive. And I think I'm particularly passionate about it because I feel like I've been dealing in Western archives my whole life, you know. Even though I grew up in Nigeria, I went to a British curriculum school. So I often just think about the ridiculousness of me learning about like Mary, Queen of Scots and Henry (laughs) VIII. It's just not relevant to me. Um, Or in geography, we're learning about the seasons in Mm. the UK. And it's upsetting. I've never heard of a Nigerian school in the UK where they Mm. learn only Nigerian history and Nigerian geography. I've never heard of that. And I don't think any European person would send their children to to (laughs) that sort of school. Mm. So I think my commitment to Black archives is sort of seeking these sort of intellectual reparations, I think. Mm. Because so much of my introduction to education was dealing with archives that were not relevant to me. So really, it's natural and it's critical. And I think it's not just about me. It's also about my community because the damage colonialism did Mm. um, or is still doing is uh, ever present. And given the demands of our modern world, it's not always relevant if one is trying to survive, Mm. you know in um, these modes of capital and whatnot to interrogate and learn and pull from our archives. So I guess, yeah, my role, I think, as an artist is to like call attention to it, to make space in people's days and minds, to turn towards ourselves. And the archive is the starting point. But I'm, I don't know, just... Talking about the archive makes me think just philosophically, just like what is this archive? What do you think of when you think of an archive? I think of like this sort of library, but it doesn't exist. I think many Black artists see, we all see ourselves as like dealing with this archive, but like what is it? Like it lives in our minds, but also in the pages of like the books that we read and that we agree that we should all read. But it really is a mental space more than anything. If you agree, what do you think? I absolutely agree. I think even the concept of the archive, to imply that there is something that exists, which is the definitive idea of an archive, I think is not to constantly bring up positionality. (laughs) Um, But again, what was said earlier about this kind of impossibility historically that we've had as kind of black and African bodies of allowing ourselves to be subjective and allowing ourselves to not allowing ourselves sorry um, being allowed to kind of see our world and our histories and our past and our presence and our futures through our own eyes is something that's been so 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 long denied of us and I think of archive and kind of archival stories and archival memories for example of Nigeria as I was absolutely not taught anything about Nigerian history in in school here, I think about the stories that my mother would tell. And in that sense, her stories, her kind of already having these stories, having these memories is already an archive that she has built for herself for for different reasons. But I believe one reason is to connect to this place of home that she 
she may never be able to fully call a home again but it is her home it is where she grew up it is where she learned um it's where she spoke Yoruba it's where she learned English it's it's all these things it's where she met my father it's it's everything to her and I think of these memories which she shared with me and for me I've now created my own archive of my own memories of this place and I think archives I think you're right essentially archives are for me at least, a making of our own memories. And our memories can be formed on different forms of knowledge, different bodily experiences, all sorts. It's interesting that the question of this archive has for so long persisted itself in, you know, Black studies, this question of, you know, whether it's decolonizing the archive or how to recontextualize the archive and, you know, how to decenter the archive. These questions have existed I think for so so long and it's interesting to see the work of people like Sadia Hartman come in and you know your work as well Olikemi um to really disentangle this idea of what actually is archival knowledge what is an archival practice what is an archive you know really stripping it all the way back mm-hmm. to you know questions that have been asked by so many philosophers in the past like I think it's I think it's really interesting. I think this idea of memory and the archive are entangled. I don't think a conversation can be fully held without thinking about memory and the archive. But but that's but that's my opinion. <laughs> and I think you just put into words so many questions that I'm currently asking myself. And I think this relationship as well between material and the archive. Not everything can be materialized. There may not always be a physical embodiment of a memory and I think that's okay and I think so much of western knowledge and western kind of history has told us that if if we can't see it if we can't feel it if we can't observe it and analyze it then it's invalid and I think again Mm -hmm. your work really can test these ideas and yeah I, I think it's wonderful Actually, no, I have some other questions for you. I was going to say that's a perfect way to close it, but it's not at all. So I wanted to ask, are there any artists or exhibitions, either past or present, which have particularly inspired you? And I know we've named so many, but is there anyone else that comes to mind? Yes, so many. I think I was so moved, so, so moved in 2018 or 2019. 2019, I think. I went to the Venice Biennale and um, I was walking through one of the rooms and I just heard this music. I just knew it was Black music. (laughs) And it almost led me, like I was in a trance, to Khalil Joseph's Black News. And I was blown away by the work. Like It was like a compilation album, (laughs) to go back to what you said. Just putting all these sounds and interviews and words together and it felt like a fever dream but like a fever dream where I felt seen like the cultural context of black people was being taken seriously and Mm. held and the juxtapositions the use of a multi-channel film to prompt uncanny and exciting parallels or third images in the mind's eye it blew my mind it blew me away 
And it made me start thinking about everything is interlinked. But that was, you know, specifically African-American culture and thinking about, okay, what archives, what visual and sonic archives do we have um, that feel contemporary, but also uh, touching on the past, but for Africans and taking all of our archives seriously. So not just like the classic, you know, sit down interviews, but also like what people are doing on TikTok and what people are doing Mm. on the internet and what are the interesting ways that Africans use the internet and how can we take that seriously as a subject to look at, but then also build up our archives. So yeah, I'd say Khalil Joseph's Black News changed my life. Yeah. That's an incredible answer. And Khalil Joseph's work, video work, photographic work, just yeah, absolutely, absolutely yeah. incredible. And like sonic work, yes. I'd say. You're right. Because the soundtracks right. are so critical. You're so right. Again, a very interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. It's the layers. They all resonate. And I love this idea again of tapping into different parts of the culture or different parts of different cultures, which the people within these cultures so often assume that it won't be archived. It won't be remembered by anyone outside of those communities. And it's beautiful to see it kind of refer back to through art. I think there are so many incredible artists doing that. So, yeah, I love Cleo's work. (laughs) And I also wanted to ask you, what is currently on your bookshelf? Is there anything that you're currently reading that you'd like to share with us today? Let me open my backpack. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've been reading this really, 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 really fun book that I recommend for any and every Black person in the arts or the literary intelligentsia because it's important to laugh at oneself. (laughs) Um, It's called Seesaw by Timothy Ogenes. Have you heard of that book? I have not heard of that book, so I'm very excited. read it. It's so, so funny. It's basically about like a writer, a Nigerian writer who gets the chance to go on a like writing fellowship in the States. And it's just about sort of like the nightmare that is academia and like academic speak and how this man is just bullshitting his way through these circles (laughs) by like talking in circles. There's a really, really funny quote I'm, I'm just looking at now. He says, one of my catchphrases is post-colonial psychomanic modernity. (laughs) (laughs) That is wonderful. Yeah, he talks about a talk that he's about to do. And he says that he has the intention of dropping these words as signposts to foreground <laughs> his legitimacy while unpacking the contents of his lecture. Like, oh, wow. It's just, it's really, really funny and speaks to the indulgent ways that we use language. Mm. And um, yeah, I, I recommend it. I'm absolutely yeah, going it's to really, read really, that. really funny. And you know what? We we do. We need to laugh at ourselves sometimes. Or that moment when you go to a talk and you're like, does that actually make sense? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Or are they selling the idea of it making sense to us? (laughs) It's great. And the last question I wanted to ask you, Olikebi, is 
Where can we see your work coming up in the future? Oh, yes. So I'm going to be in a show in Amsterdam later on this year. And if you go to my website, olukemilijadu.com, and sign up for my newsletter, then I'll send over information whenever my work is showing. Currently, I'm in a period where I'm making new work. Um, so things are a little bit quiet, but there's some really, really exciting things on the way. Next year, I'm doing a residency in Chicago, looking at the legacy of West African music in Chicago house music. Oh, wow. And I'll be looking at the Astor Gates archive from this legendary DJ called Frankie Knuckles as like a starting point for that investigation. So, yeah. Lots of really exciting things coming up. That sounds incredible. I honestly cannot wait to see what you do of that residency. And just, yeah, I can't wait to have another discussion with you, I hope, very, very soon. And every year for the next 10, 20 years, I just, I'm so excited to yeah. see everything that you do. Thank you so much, Palumi. Thank, Thank you, you for so this much. conversation. And thank you for seeing my work, you know. I really appreciate it. I think as an artist, you don't always know if you will be seen. I, I deeply appreciate that you provided this space for me to think through the work again. And yeah, I look forward to more and more conversations. Oh, absolutely. And believe me, your work is being seen um, by so many more than me. So congratulations on everything and thank you so much. And thanks to our listeners. And thank you, Oli Kami, for being on Art Fictions. Amazing. Yay. A huge thanks to those who've contributed to the production of this program via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast. If you haven't already, please do. It's a small ask and it makes a big difference. Thank you, listeners. And also thanks to today's wonderful guest, Olukemi Lijadu, and our lovely host, Palumi Odabanjo. When and if you feel inspired, contact us by email artfictionspodcast at gmail.com or DM artfictionspodcast or one word on Instagram and tell us what you think of this episode, tell us about your creative endeavours or just say hi. Credit where it's due for this abridged podcast. The music was written and performed by Griffin Nipe. Laurie E. Allen helped me out with the production and multi-mega award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our logo. Happy listening, reading, seeing and making. Till next time.